Scuba Obsessed Weekly Podcast, where we talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear, to places to dive, and scuba news. Scuba Obsessed Episode 397 was recorded live February 21st, 2019. back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Jolson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan. Joining me this week, we have Mac the Dive Mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well. Uh, the weather outside has moderated tremendously, even though we still have a lot of ice out there. Yeah, we have ice trying to hang around, but I hear we're going to have some, we, we're having, we're at that time of year where you, it's not unusual to have above freezing days. It would be nice to hit the river because I checked it today and we had over three foot visibility. Oh, wow. That's much right. better than I thought we would have. Yeah, that's just looking straight down. You know, it, it almost doesn't make sense because we were at flood stages just a week ago. And this isn't a flooded area. That surprised me. You know, the it new was- bridge I just put in from Benton Harbor over to the uh, inn in St. Joe? Yeah. I was out there playing around again, pictures. And I'm uh-huh. looking down where I normally dive at, and it's like, damn. <laughs> you know, I got every bit of three-foot visibility. Huh. So with a light, I bet I could have had some fun down there. Yeah, cleaned up. There was a good bit of ice around, so I don't, you know, you don't want to take a nice line, but. Oh, certainly. Looked interesting. Yeah. Have you done any diving near the new bridge yet? No, I have not. I I have actually, I got some surgery scheduled for, uh, Next week, so I'm going to be out of service for, he said, anywhere from six to eight weeks. Oh, six to eight weeks. They just yeah. can't super glue or anything that can't take care of it? Nah, this is going to be a little more invasive than super glue. <laughs> oh, okay. Because you just, you just got to seal the holes up. Otherwise, you're fine. Yeah, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, that's. I guess that's why I'm not a doctor. Well, let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. Uh, before we get going, I'd like to thank everybody who's in the chat room. We have Derek and Derek. I, I guess uh, some of the other diehards aren't aren't in there tonight. We do have Craig. We got Craig to join in. I was going to say, Craig is always there, hopefully, yeah. and well, hopefully he, stays the whole time, too. Yeah, some, sometimes he's a little flaky. And uh, for those who don't know, that, that he's the recording robot who records the episode, so... As long as he's in there and doing okay and we got good bandwidth, we'll be fine. So let's look at this first article we have this week. And uh, this one, I think it's from Texas area. It says, uh, Thieves Target Scuba Store in Frisco Plano. Uh, And there's a video that goes along with this. Uh, Tens of thousands of dollars worth of scuba gear was stolen from two small businesses in Collin County. The burglaries happened at Scuba Frisco and Adventure Scuba in Plano. In the Scuba Frisco break, and two men were seen on surveillance video rushing into the store with white trash bags. They begin to grab gear off the shelves, and they aren't bothered when the alarm goes off. Store, store owner Thorsten Prutz said he had been alerted to the break-in by a security company and watched it happen on his tablet at home live. You are in shock, he says. There's nothing that can describe it. 
You just see it taking place. You see dollars disappearing from the, your place of business. Prout said that he had that more than $15,000 worth of equipment was stolen, including air regulators, buoyancy control devices. He said the thieves stole what they likely thought were dive computers, but they're actually fakes used for displays. Frisco police are looking for two suspects along with a person of interest who Prout said was in the store days earlier. Adventure Scuba in Plano was also broken into just before 11 p.m. on January 31st, shortly before the Frisco burglary. The owner reported more than $17,000 worth of similar equipment stolen. He said he's turned over surveillance video to police and believes the same people were responsible. Police have not said whether the cases are related. And uh, I watched the video, and uh, they didn't hide themselves as much as you would think for breaking in. I mean, Up until the end. I mean, first they had their yeah. back turned to the camera. But like you said, yeah. leaving, and the one guy's hoodie almost came off. And yeah. then looking at the still photos, if you know these people, you will recognize them from these photos. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and they, they the police did. I went over to the police uh, Facebook page, which was listed in one of the articles, because we have two articles that were covering this. And they went through the video of the store for like the previous two weeks. And uh, they think that they had been in there casing it. So they've got a person of interest that they're looking for. And so they're asking people to, uh, if they recognize anybody and they show the person of interest and the two in the hoodies. Did they say whether or not the other store had video also? It said that that had been turned in. So it sounded like that the other store had video. That would be cool because between the two of them, and again, for two weeks, person of interest, if he was mm-hmm. in both shops, you can be pretty much assured that, uh, there was some uh, collusion there. We just have to hope none of the shops that we go into regularly get burglared because we <laughs> we would hit them all. Well, you just watch eBay for sure. Yeah, that's that's what I was thinking is that they, they must have uh, thought that this is going to be something they could easily fence. So I'm guessing either they've got a place that said that they would take it, you know, they had kind of pre-sold it, fenced it, or they uh, – we're planning on doing eBay deals. I know that when you get uh, skydiving gear stolen, it gets reported really quick and all the drop zones and people because uh, your rig has got a serial number, your canopies have serial numbers, your AAD has serial numbers, and most guys will post them, this is what it looks like, blah, 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 blah. And majority of, of people who are out there buying gear will check this to make sure they're not buying something that's not appropriate to buy. That's good that they're looking into it. Uh, I watched the video, and you know, they had obviously cased the store because of how quick they were moving. Yeah. But there was the- one, yeah, and they were going past, there's like, there's like some B, uh, BCDs, and they were like grabbing them. There's one they went by like, oh, I don't want that. And then in the end, he ended up grabbing it anyway. So I was trying to see if there's anything you could read into that. Is that, you know, what did that mean? If there's any local dive clubs, it'd be really good to uh, contact them too. Yeah. Yeah, because that's a lot of, that was a lot of gear. And then just in that one video, you know, Six, uh, six or seven BCDs, and I, I don't know where the guy was. The other guy in the shop was kind of in the back in the dark, you know. And I, 
it looked like maybe he had some regulators. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's a, that's a lot of gear. For, it's, it's, they're not doing it for personal use, I'm guessing. I wonder if well, maybe you got that one. The, you got the report on that. That'd be good to check back in a week or two and find out really what happened on this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I wonder if maybe the reason the guy didn't grab that one is maybe it was a child size. So he uh, just thought that. Yeah, maybe I didn't want it. But then he had room because what they did is they had the trash can with white trash bags in it. <clears throat> I don't know if they brought the trash cans in with them or they just knew they were there and used them. Yeah. Well, this next one is a follow-up. Uh, Florida, uh, which is uh, the FWC, it's a Florida and Wildlife. That stands for Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. I looked it up. <laughs> well, F- it, it, there's not enough letters for that. It just says FWC. I know. That I figured it out, and then I, I Googled it to find out. I said, what the hey? That's pretty big. Yeah. yeah. So FWC deems taking tropical fish from Blue Heron Bridge illegal. And uh, we we looked at this, uh, was it a couple, two, three months ago, they were, yep. there was a, a big movement going on. So Blue Heron Bridge is a special place. It really is the place where people all over the world come and its international recognitions has skipped, oh, my goodness, Kummerage, owner of Force E Scuba Shop. He's been do, uh, diving the Blue Heron Bridge and helping others enjoy it for decades. He says the site became more and more popular. People found exotic species. We started to get more and more collectors. People are taking unique wildlife, something that was completely legal, but one incident really brought it to light. The aquarium in Texas, Moody Gardens, was accused of taking thousands of fish. CBS 12 News caught on camera divers loading up buckets in the box truck, and later a local conservationist gave CBS 12 video of FWC investigating the same box truck. Moody Gardens claimed it only took the amount of fish they were, (laughs) in the article says illegally allowed to, I'm sure he said it. I'm sure he said legally allowed to. Turns out they had a FWC permit, which... FWC revoked. It's just underlined the problem. You can't have an area as specialist as the Blue Heron Bridge without special protection against collectors, collections, said Dan Volker, a member of the Blue Heron Bridge Preservation Initiative. The group really spearheaded this push. Wednesday, FWC followed through something Volker and other members were elated about. Uh, is, is Am I saying that right? Sometimes you look at a word and it just doesn't come. Close enough. For- yeah, yeah. Well, we'll say that was fine. Uh, said it's great for people enjoying area and local businesses. He says it's a huge economic boom for Palm Beach County. And then that's the end of the article. Well, um, I was curious about that, and I tried to find out what were the conditions for a permit. I could not find anywhere where they had a permit. Or they issued a permit because every time you looked on that, it said, this is not covered at this time. So they must be modifying that. But I looked that up and I was curious because uh, they have two licenses there. Oh, let me rephrase that. They have a saltwater fishing license or licenses and saltwater fishing permit. All right. So I said permit. So I was looking under permits. And it said Florida residents who only have a saltwater fish license and fish from the land or a structure, or they can wade out so they don't touch the bottom, all right? And there's no cost to get it, but you got to have it if you're a resident. 
The license does not cover anyone fishing from a boat or from an island that they arrived at by boat. And then it's uh, individuals who hold a recreational salt water fishing license or any other license that includes recreational salt water do not need a shoreline permit, which to me is, hey, get one for a boat and then you're covered for the shoreline. Right. And the cost was very, very good. I mean, not very much at all. But yeah. I, I looked through it and it said Florida requires permits for wildlife possession, exhibition, and sale. But None of the items that you'd find under that were on that listing. Not to mention, it is legal to take samples for your aquarium. Yes. But there is a limit of, uh, I think it was 20 per day of a certain type. Right. And so 20 thousands, per day. Yeah, yeah, thousands is something. But if they had a permit, then they were not illegally taking it if they were issued that. So I don't think right. they should I get on the people's a, case. No, they shouldn't. I think this is a case of the public perception in that particular location was that nobody should be doing any collection, and they just, you know, highlighted it. Right. Uh, and they can, in fact, do that as long as they notify people and, you know, do the proper postings. Because there are certain areas in all the vast lands of Florida that you have to have some other special permit to dive there, not dive but to collect vegetation yeah. samples because there's like three different classifications for, for aquatic animals, land animals, sea animals. It was quite interesting. Yeah. It's, you know, as long as they're, is they're looking at the broad picture, you know, is, is this really impacting the environment? Uh, are there specific species that need to be protected and others that are plentiful? Is it just this particular location? Uh, it sounded in the articles when we covered it before, a lot of it was, well, that's where I dive, so I don't want anybody to take anything. And, and then it didn't sound have, like it had thousands and thousands that you would want to take. Yeah. And is part of this because of that uh, bridge that it makes it for easy access? So they're in an area that, uh, you know, a collector goes, finds nice, because you're, you're talking about the, you know, the type of permit and whether it was from a boat or an island. Well. If you don't have to get to the island by a boat, it's that bridge. I don't know. Is that maybe what they were what they were doing? Well, I couldn't get a copy of the permit because I'd love to have seen that. And I knew you can rescind one, but stay off their case. If you issued it, stay off their back, terminate it, issue is over. Yeah. Well, and it, it's, yeah. So they're, so they're now saying that it's, if you take from the bridge, it's now illegal. That's what it appears to be in, in that area, that area. Because yeah. I found another article, which was like from the day before, which is almost a duplicate of this one, saying that it may become illegal. So I'm guessing whatever hearing or legal process they had, they made the decision. And then uh, the Deepwater Horizon oil spill is corroding away Nazi subs and shipwrecks. Uh, the Deepwater Horizon offshore drilling rig in April of 2010 sparked a large environmental crisis. Over 4.9 million barrels of oil gushed into the Gulf of Mexico, leading to damage to marine life and a wider ecosystem. A new study has highlighted another unexpected victim of the oil spill, Nazi submarines. Writing in the Journal of Frontiers and Marine Scientists, 
and science scientists led by the University of Southern Mississippi have now detailed how Deepwater Horizon oil spill is subjecting the area's historical shipwrecks to more corrosive water, causing them to disintegrate at a startling rate. The metal from one wreck in particular, German submarine U-166, has experienced a huge amount of corrosion. The submarine was in the Atlantic Ocean during World War II on a mission to sink merchant ships and naval vessels, an operation known as the Second Happy Time or the American shooting season to the Germans. The U-166 sank numerous U.S. ships during this, but the troublesome sub was eventually sunk by depth charge in the summer of 1942 by U.S. ship captained by Herbert Claudius. The wreck has laid in the seabed of the Gulf of Mexico ever since and was hunted down by archaeologists' survey in 2001. Well, I looked that up, too, because I was quite interested. The way they reference it, corroding away Nazi subs. Well, the UC, or the U-166, rests in 5,000 feet of water, some 50 miles southeast of New Orleans. Like you said, it was located in 2001 after some research. And, uh, one, who's going to go down there and check it out? How can they make that determination about the metal if... They only found it in 2001, and it's a recent item. Right. But the key item that they talked about, it said, um, strangely enough, the recent problem with corrosion actually has its roots in bacteria living on the seafloor. The researchers argue, meaning they haven't concluded this is correct, argue that the influx of crude oil has provided the area's anaerobic bacteria with carbon and sulfur to munch on. With a surplus of energy, the bacterial communities have boomed and formed a dense biofilm of microorganisms that can easily stick to surfaces like a ship's hull. Unfortunately, this biofilm pumps out a corrosive byproduct that can degrade metal. Now, the reason I find that interesting is if you look at the secretions from quagga and zebra mussels on metal, they do the same thing. Yes. So... I don't know if they're searching or uh, or not, but hey, it's just not oil that's been on the on the you know that leaked to the bottom. So I thought it was interesting. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, not that I'm advocate. I'm going to sound like I advocate oil going in the water, but what we're seeing here is that nature's way of combating things that it finds in the environment, such as oil. So there's bacteria present in the Gulf of Mexico that when the oil, when it comes in contact with oil, the bacteria will, will create a bloom or, or grow at a rate uh, more than what they can normally sustain. And uh, you're going to see that, you know, and, and it takes a little bit of time for these bacteria to ramp up, but now that they're there, they're slowly going to, or maybe not even slowly, they're going to work their way through all that exposed or fresh oil, relatively fresh, and consume and the, it. And the deterioration of the hull, though, that's like the Titanic. They figured that one's going to be gone in a few more years. Yes. Now, they're saying that was because of the different types of metal used during that period and the environment sent. Mm-hmm. The metal that the ship was generated in or created the submarine back in the early 40s would also be of a different construction. So perhaps it's the manufacturer 
of the different steels and iron that are also making it more uh, susceptible to this kind of corrosion? It's possible. Certainly different alloys will have properties that may make them resistant to bacteria. You know, that bacteria naturally might not be able to uh, do anything with, or it it takes them longer or more effort. Yeah. Uh, But what I think this is calling for is that they need to raise these submarines and as a preservation effort, put them in Lake Michigan. (laughs) Hey, I'm all for that. Yeah. See, because then the, you know, we, we could dissolve all that, you know, the, the na- uh, nasty buildup that's been happening. And then we know that fresh water can help preserve it. You know, if you put it at about 120 feet of depth, then, you know, we'll, you know, have the nasty salt water reacting with the metal. Well, we already have a nice German submarine here in our own backyard. Yep. So, yeah, so they could put it right next to it. Like well, little... I think if they brought it inland to our neck of the woods at 120 feet, yeah, it would prevent them having to go through and do any ecological studies when they bring it up and preservation. We'll save them millions. Yeah, it's, uh, preserve almost in place, preservation in place. Isn't that what they're yeah. called? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I, th- I think we solved it. Well, we'll just have to broadcast out there and try to try to get them to go along with us. Yeah. And then here's one from uh, last week's episode. Uh, Loves Park scuba divers await world record status. Things didn't go as planned for scuba divers. Jackson Balsaman and four-year-old with autism and William Lambert, nearly a centurion. Well, they traveled to Cozumel, Mexico to break some world records, but the scuba diving record may have been broken nonetheless. Both are waiting to hear from Guinness World Records, even though Jackson wasn't allowed to dive at Hotel Cozumel because of his age. I shouldn't laugh, but wouldn't you have checked that out? You would think so. But by the same token, they could have got on a boat, gone offshore someplace, and still done it if it was that much of a, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Go to a beach, go out in 11 foot of water and do it. So eh, maybe they had second thoughts. Yeah. Uh, he has made at least 60 dives in 11 feet of water at Love's Park Scuba and Snorkel Shop. Although he didn't dive in Mexico, he loves he dives in Love's Park are being submitted to Guinness for consideration. Lampert made a request number of open water dives in effort to become the oldest scuba diver by three years, but he slipped them some tiles while taking a post-dive group photo. His arm needed about 30 stitches, 15 inside and 15 outside in a trip home sat, stat. Videos, birth certificate, and other proof and dives and birthdays have been submitted. Dan Johnson of Love Park and Scuba and Snarkle. And Marcella Castillo, Jackson's mother, submitted videos of the dives at the scuba shop for Jackson. Uh, They'd like Jackson to become known as the youngest scuba diver. The child wasn't able to dive in Mexico, but he's still on the boat the divers plunged from. Being on the water, Jackson saw the cruise ship and decided he wanted to own one for the future. And he made sure to swim in the hotel pool every day. He was so well behaved in the plane ride, says Castillo, whose son behavior also calmed since he's been scuba diving with enriched air called nitrox. He did really, really well, but he kept saying he wanted to dive and he couldn't dive. The diving began two weeks ago. Johnson and Lambert were required to make four dives to break the record. Johnson was also uh, watching over several students and some of, of their relatives Lambert's daughter was one of the scuba divers who entered the water with her father. It was great. 
I can't say enough about how good it was. I've got to thank Dan. Without him, I never would have been able to do it. Experience was wonderful. Lambert's 99th birthday is September 5th, according to Johnson and Castillo. Yeah, the best laid plans. <laughs> Hopefully he, he heals up pretty well. Yep. And then uh, since we're on records, uh, we have a gentleman who set a record in scuba cycling. Uh, the article says people tend to go pedaling through different terrains, mud trails and concrete roads along coastal plains, along the sand, snow and slush. But uh, <laughs> Mumbakar has uh, taken his passion for cycling into a territory you wouldn't dream of underwater. You you wouldn't know that I picked these articles. It's almost like I've looked for the worst names. Nushant K. Patel, an entrepreneur from Vile Parl, uh, holds a record as the world's fastest, second deepest scuba cyclist in the world. A video of Nishant's battles the deep as he cycles in the bed leaves you awestruck, though impossible and scary are just some of the words that come to mind with it. But the 37-year-old maverick, as he likes to call himself, laughs it away. It's not tough. I've always believed the desire to succeed should be much greater than the fear of failure. And as they say, no risk taken, no risk gain. A cycling buff. He regularly rides with a group in the city on various trails. He is also a certified downhill cycle racing specialist. I have taken cycling events, races in India, including the coveted route from uh, Manali to Kardung and finishing a grueling tour of Nalgiris, which covers some of the toughest slopes in the southern region of India, despite nursing a gout attack in the middle of the tour he shares. Two years ago, the question, what's next, hit him like what he does with most adventures. So he decided to combine his two interests as an avid cyclist and a diver and thought of conquering the depth through scuba cycling and open sea. I was always with within me to challenge myself. I was not a certified scuba diver then, so I read more about it and went on the gain the required certifications. The first underwater adventure was in the swimming pool. It felt amazing, gave me a rush, which I realized was just a drop in the ocean. The real thing would be so much bigger, he states. Neshant took off uh, to practice at 5 to 7 meters depth in water to set a world record at depth of 30-plus meters under sea. This was to understand how the geometry of cycles would work, what the ocean bed would be like. For instance, the wheels won't work well in sand, but they can move on rock beds. He also had to figure out weights and needed to add to help me and my cycle maintain buoyancy. It took Nishant six months to practice prepare. I had to see how long I could balance in the bike. The most important thing was to be able to pedal fully and make a complete rotation of the chain wheels. After the dynamics were in place, it was time to attempt uh, a record. Uh, it wasn't all smooth. I had to deal with Murphy's Law at the last minute since the place where we practiced had a strong ocean currents that morning. We shifted to a second location. The currents there, too, were not as strong. It was the only option, so I had to decide to either take up the challenge or tank it. Before I plunged in the water, all I was thinking is, this is it. There's no turning back, and I've got to get to the finish line. It was tricky as I was focused harder and put more weight in the front of the cycle to prevent it from going up as the currents were changing. The tracks also changed as the bottle markers on the floor of the ocean started moving. 
During the stint, I came upon crevices and corals, so I had to change the route sideways to avoid damaging the fan corals and the cycle he adds. There was a dangerous point midway with excessive pressure almost caused Neshant to collapse. He says, I felt my life flashing before my eyes as my heart rate escalated to 200 plus. It took a few seconds and suddenly I was able to cycle again with renewed energy. I was, it was though God had given me another chance. The target was to complete at least 100 meters based on the calculation. Everyone was prepared that it would take 18 minutes, but I achieved the target of 100 meters in 6 minutes and 47 seconds, which is way less than half the time. As a result, the team was not ready for me as they didn't anticipate I would finish so soon. They were surprised when I did so. I mean, that. what do you, what do you thought of that? Uh, <coughs> uh, was it just overexertion where he uh, almost collapsed and felt my life flashing before my eyes? I I haven't got a clue. Did you look at the at the video? <coughs> no, I I wasn't able to watch the video. It, it the- seems to me, I'd have practiced in the pool and got really good first, because of my my first question is number one is I thought we we're not supposed to touch the bottom when we're diving because of fish <laughs> vegetation, not to mention coral because coral he he went around it. But isn't that true? Isn't what we're really supposed to do is stop? You know, hitting yeah, the bottom just, and yeah, so it's bubble. Maybe that was not a good thing there. But the second item is, if you balance the the, the unit and your pool at fifteen feet, to me, you could set it up so you're already set the balance. So I'm not sure why that was an issue. Second of all, if there was an issue on left and right, you know, keeping it up, why not put training wheels on it? That's acceptable. I, yeah, I'm not sure. But now I, mean, I want to go out there and try it on a bicycle. <laughs> it, well, I, I like the bike. I think he chose a good bike, don't you? That uh, yeah, that's a nice bike. Yeah, that's uh, that's a, that's a good size. It's a it's a smaller wheel wheeled bike, and uh, so it makes it easier to to get on. Because I imagine you, you know he you you fall to the bottom almost, and you're going to be a little bit heavy. Because you need to be able to keep it down, but I would, I would get the bike balanced so that just the bike on its own. Oh yeah, yeah. And I'd use the big, uh, the big tires, not the skinny one. That's for sure. You know, like the big ones they now have. Yeah, the, yeah. Those those fat bike tires. Yeah, fat tight. And yeah. Uh, would you would you that, put water in them? I wouldn't. Well, yet yeah, now that you said that though. Yeah, well, like I'm thinking of you, you add quite a bit oh, of buoyancy. Yes. Yeah. Unless, unless, well, how's this for a winter sport? Maybe you leave the air in it and you do it in like how they have a hockey under the ice. Why not riding under the ice? Well, now I'm just thinking now that you said that. If I have my tire pressure and some of the skinny tires, you've got 90 pounds in it, so they're not going to collapse too much. But if you had 32 pounds in a tire, you go down that much. Oh, yeah. You're going to have a flat tire. Yeah, so I, I think you just put water in it. That, or that, you use that, what is that sealed leak? Just fill up the whole tire with that sealed leak? Let it turn into that, a solid? That green, that green slime? Yeah, that green slime. <laughs> yeah, but you know, we are gonna. That. we need to do that. We Somebody would let us borrow a bike, and we could get YMCA to let us go down there. Do, 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 you, tell, do you tell them what you're going to use the bike for? Can I, can I just use your bike? <laughs> <laughs> well, if you bring it out and dry it real quick. You know, well, should we're, be okay. We're, 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 we're going to wash it. Yeah, yeah. 
They clean it. I'm yeah, not they, sure if the water gets into the axle, though. I think it gets everywhere. Else, everything else you could just steam clean real quick. Well, we know we found a bunch of bikes in the water, but uh, this would probably be the first time we'd actually taken one down. This, this, this sounds like a challenge. Oh, I, that's exactly right. I mean, we find enough junk and half, well, sometimes new ones. So we're going to have to just try this this summer. Then we'll do our own report. Yeah, well, and then uh, the chat room is saying that Mythbusters had an episode where they tried to ride a bike under the water. Really? what they and, say? Uh, they said they would have been more successful than less slippery bottom. And now that he's saying it, I kind of remember it. Um, this is fairly early on, one of the earlier episodes, I think, where they did that. I'll, I'll have to do some uh, looking up. Huh. Yeah. Remind me, I'm going to put this in the, on the club site. Make a comment on this. Yeah. Well, see, Lake Michigan would be perfect because uh, you got the sand bottom. Now, they said it didn't go good in sand, but maybe well, we just no. need to make a tracked version. We'll go out there where the clay banks are. Ooh, That's hard yeah. bottom. Oh. Yeah, hard. then you could you could do some interesting things because uh, you could just about, uh, you know, you could, I'm sure you could launch over a four-foot gap. Oh, I wonder if we could put an electric bike down there. Ooh, there you go. Scooter. Yeah. Okay, now oh. we're getting radical, but hey, that does sound interesting. <laughs> yeah. Food for thought. Well, you, you, you could create like, uh, you could have like a bike racing league. Televise it. And... Well, I've done tricycles under the ice, uh, and they work. Skiing under the ice, you know, that works. So now, now I say that, we'll put nails in the solid tires on the bike. Right, that upside down. Hmm. That should work. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> now, there's, there's something in there. I, I'm, I'm, we're not done with this one. We'll have to, yeah. I'll have to see some more stuff. It has and planted then, a seed. Uh, that's a dangerous thing. Ale from 1886 shipwreck yields a new brew and a conflict. News that an upstate New York brewer planned to recreate an ale from a bottle salvaged from a 1933-year-old shipwreck took the wind out of the sails of scuba diving Long Island brewer who has already done it. Jamie Adams, owner of St. James Brewery in Holbrook, said Wednesday he has plans to release his new ale next month. He created it from yeast. He painstakingly cultured from bottles of English ale he salvaged in 2017 from the wreck of the SS Oregon, which set off, sank off Fire Island in 1886. Adams, who'd been diving in a 135-foot wreck for nearly 20 years, was stunned when he saw an Associated Press story over the weekend describing another brewer's plans to use the Oregon yeast. One of the divers I had enlisted to help me find the bottles with the intent of making beer, given one of them to this other brewer, unbeknownst to me, Adams said. Adams learned that about it when the State University of New York in Cobbleskill announced that students are trying to culture yeast from a shipwreck bottle given to Bill Feather of Serious Brewing in Howe's Cave. The plan was for Felter to create a new beer if the students were successful. I called Felter and he agreed not to use the yeast, Adam said. I'm glad we could work out and work out amicably without having to take legal action. Felter told the Syracuse Post-Standard he had scuttled his plans out of respect for his fellow farm brewer. I didn't want to step on their toes. The Oregon, which is near and dear 
to Long Island scuba diver said Adams was a former Wall Street trader who took up brewing and diving after 9-11. He was in the Titanic of its day. It was built as a luxury liner to ferry people between New York and Europe. The wreck is 75% buried in the sand, which shifts after storms to uncover various portions of the ship. In 2017, we found an area around first-class dining room was accessible. It hadn't been for years, Adams said. Adams and fellow divers used a dredge to uncover artifacts, including china, silverware, bottles of ale with corks intact. Thorough research, he determined the bottles contained classic English ale. We've opened a few and been able to propagate a few different yeast strains, he said. After making numerous test batches since 2017, Adams had a yeast strain he was confident would perform properly. We're calling it Sea King New York Ale. Adam said it was the debut on March 9th at the annual New York Craft Brewers Festival in Albany. Do you think it's going to taste that much different from ales that are currently being brewed in England? Well, you know, those the two articles, you have them both together, the ale from 1886 yeah. and Uptate New York, those together. Yep. Well, yep. Part of that, when they were discussing this in one of the reports, I consider clickbait because immediately they go say, who can say who the owner is of the, you know, the, the whenever they take that off of the old beer? Well, who mm-hmm. really owns that yeast? It's like, excuse me, is that really an issue? I'm and sure then I looked it up and it's not, this is not unusual. It's been done before in well, other places. Oh, the, the cultivating of the yeast? Yes. From. Oh, yeah. Things like this from the uh, the sea bottom. Yeah, because yeah, we've covered articles six or seven times, mm-hmm. different parts of the world where people have found it. I mean, we had the that one real recently uh, was what the guy was down in Australia or something. I'm trying to remember where which I, New Zealand maybe, but yeah, this is and they they do that, but aren't they? Are they saying that the yeast changes over time? Now I can. I can appreciate our taste may change or develop. But, I don't uh, know. I really don't know how to make beer. And uh, I certainly don't know how to take something off of a bottle that's 100 years plus and then develop something from it. Right. Well, I mean, because, I mean, look at your classic brews in the U.S. or around the world. They all They all claim to be brewed since, you know, who knows. So well, you figure the, you know. The other reason they landed at Plymouth Rock is because they ran out of beer. <laughs> Was that is that the story? Well, it is. When you run out of, you know, you know, why do you drink beer all the time back in the old days? Because the water was no good. <laughs> Absolutely. So once you ran out of good drinking stuff, meaning that's what's been brewed, boiled, they had to land and make more beer. That's what I heard. Oh, okay. Makes more sense. It does. Plus, you have to have priorities. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, anybody wants to send us some, I'll just make arrangements. <laughs> we'll, well, we'll we missed it. you at AJ's yesterday. Yeah, I know. I, that was, a, yeah, because you, you had the, the Mud Club meeting this week. And, yeah, that was our uh, that was our last day to work on the uh, competition robot before I had to go in the bag for the robotics team. Well, they gave us the back room and we filled up two tables. Almost everybody at the meeting went. Oh, wow. Yes. I was very surprised and pleased. So good turnout. 
uh, so you went to AJ's? Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I was. Did you see that the uh, there's new owners of Romas now? I heard the old man was back, but they they did sell it. But I haven't heard any other details. Yeah, it, it sold. The name's going to change. I think it's going to be. Uh, yeah, and this is incredibly local, non-scuba news. Um, Uptown Pizza is the one that's going to be next to AJ's, which I, that opened about a week ago. Yep. Uh, and this one was Town Hall Pizza is going to be the old Romas. Ha. Huh. Uh, well, and, it'll be they, interesting to see if they have better hours and if they have you know the special salad like they used to. And well, they're going to be open past nine o'clock. Yeah, they well they're they're they didn't have the pasta for a while. Now they've gone and the, the people who bought it owned a uh, uh, a pizza company down in Indiana, uh, which is called uh, the same name, um, Villa Town Hall Pizza. Yeah, Town Hall Pizza. Uh, and but they do take credit cards now, <laughs> which is. You wouldn't think it's a big deal, but there's been times where you're like, crap, you know, you got to run to the ATM to get cash to come back to go and have a pizza. So, oh, yeah. Well, cool. I'm, uh, it sounds like you had a great turnout. Yeah, we did. Good meeting. Uh, so, we do got a couple more articles. We have the, uh, there's another one from India, and we'll just, we'll just highlight over it, but this was a story about a, a person who was looking for a plane that his father had rescued the pilot of from in 1964. His grandfather, who was a fisherman, had rescued a pilot when the the aircraft had crashed in the water. And the person flying it was somebody who he was in maintenance and he'd been rejected from being a pilot. So he took the jet out and then didn't know how to land it. So he ended up being the only landing on water by a jet in India. So uh, the fisherman's grandson is the one who he'd been searching for it since 2010 and finally found it. Uh, that actually was pretty interesting because I looked that up. Yeah, that, And it, the interesting part, and I just sent you a link on that, mm-hmm. the carrier, I-N-S, Bearcat, means courageous, it was a initially the one that the aircraft was from was a Majesty class aircraft carrier of the Indian Navy. The ship was laid down as the HMS Hercules from the British Royal Navy during World War II. Well, at the war, when it ended, they put it on hold, and India purchased that incomplete carrier in 1957. It was completed in '61 and was commissioned as the first aircraft carrier of the Indian Navy. First of all, I didn't realize they had an aircraft, but they did. Uh, And it was commissioned, let's see, oh yeah, and played a key role in enforcing the naval blockade of East Pakistan during the Indo-Pakistani War of 1971, which being an American, most people had no freaking clue that other people were fighting. No, there's there's conflict that we're not involved in? Yeah, Uh, and it was decommissioned in 1997. And like you said, this gentleman here, it did not say if he took off from the aircraft carrier, which I find hard to believe. If you look at the picture I sent over, it's a jump carrier, the one that's got the deck that goes up. Oh, yeah. It's quite interesting. And the other aspect is they are now building their own 
It's also going to be called the same name, Bear Account. I'm pronouncing that wrong. And that'll mm-hmm. be the first aircraft carrier built in India by India for India. And it's going to be out of dry dock. It should be out of dry dock now in 2011. And was launched in 2013, meaning out of dry dock. And as of 2018, uh, it was to be completed uh, starting as two years sea trials. So it's supposed to be functional in October 2020. And what I found interesting is the jet that's going to be on it in 2021 is the Mikoyan, meaning Russian Soviet jet, MiG-29K. So it's funny that you had an old jet, British or old carrier, a new carrier with the same name, really sophisticated. Interesting. Hmm. Now I got to go look afterwards and find out how many people other than them and North Korea and China have carriers. Yeah. Well, I'm kind of surprised that uh, India went with Russia. Uh, now, I think, yeah, that, that might, yeah, well, that, that, that's another podcast because I think there's there's a economic yes. uh, currency thing going on there. You got the BRIC, Brazil, India, Russia, China. Yep. Try and do away with the dollar and go back to the gold standard. Yeah. So I'm sure that's what it was, is that they were trying to uh, uh, navigate around that. Yep. Economics rule the world. Well, right. Plus, you know, they're getting tired of us always getting mad at them and then uh, messing with their bank accounts. Yeah. And then we make the rich people unable to travel to the United States, which also kind of ticks them off. Let's see. The next one we have is a talk on the excavation of Phoenician shipwreck off Gozo. After 10 years of exploring the surface of Phoenician shipwreck off uh, Zeldi Bay, a team led by University of Malta has planned and executed the world's first archaeological excavation by divers at a depth of more than 110 meters. A talk switching below the surface, excavating the Phoenician shipwreck off Gozo, covers aspects Related logistical preparations prior to the diving, new methodologies used for scientific work at the steps, as well as the results have emerged from the past two seasons of investigations. <coughs> Timmy Gambin, senior lecturer in Maritime Archaeology, Department of Classics, Archaeology, University of Malta, will be giving the lecture tomorrow at 6 p.m. in the National Museum of Archaeology. Um, this was February 18th on Monday, so they've already given that. Uh, talk, but that's a that's quite a depth to be doing archaeological work. Three hundred and thirty feet. I'm curious. Well, obviously they're going to be using submersibles. It's got to be. Well, no, they're talking divers. I, but how much time you got down there? You're going to do sat? That's crazy. I yeah, I don't know. I mean that that was the whole point. I mean because submersibles. I mean they've been doing archaeological work with submersibles this is the the diver so yeah maybe maybe you are going to do sat would that be the way you do it set a habitat up down there and you put the divers down there and they just work for a week well i'm looking at the exploring the shipwreck it's a whole new series here and the it's one darker than blazes that if you didn't have the lights i'm looking at uh all the divers i see are definitely rebreathers Mm-hmm. And some of the stuff is outstanding. Let me tell you. Oh, let me send that to you. You might want to look at that. Okay. Uh, I, I know I'm having fun looking at it. Uh, let's see. 
Did that come to you? Yep. If nothing uh, else, the pictures are awesome. Because that one had the excavation, which is that down line. This is actual re on the bottom. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's supposed to be, what, 2,700-year stuff. Well, and you think at that depth, it's probably in better shape than uh, shallower wrecks. Plus, you, we, we, do, you, do sponge divers ever get down that deep? I don't think so. No. No, I, um, I think it's, uh, you know, I, I know they've gone as deep as 200 because of that, that Antithikira wreck uh, that had been picked over by sponge divers. Right. Well, I'm looking at some of the, uh, the jugs and stuff, and I'm familiar with the long extended amphora jugs, and these are not. These are more looking like the jugs we have, except they're wider mouth and handles. It's pretty interesting. This is... I mean, they could recover this stuff very easily because it's just yeah. littering the bottom. Did you see the pictures yet? No, my internet. No? Okay. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Well, here they come. Whoa, yeah. I yeah. What you're talking about. <laughs> Something else. Is yeah. that enough stuff on the bottom? We could do an yeah. ecology dive there. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Yeah, give, it, give us eight hours and some tarps, and we'll fill them up. <laughs> Yeah, it's hard though. You're looking at I, that one field, and I couldn't. Is that a skull or is that a bottle? I could I couldn't tell the difference. Or a jug. That's cool, I'm, I'm isn't it? Sure they're jugs. Yeah, this is, and that's probably the shape of the vessel. That's why they're all in that row. It was probably the vessel laid, you know, settled on the bottom, and as the wood rotted away, the jugs were what was left. I'm looking at this one guy. They've got the grid work on the bottom. I can see. Four tanks hanging off his body, not counting what's on his back and off to the side. So it's not a sat dive then? Well, I mean, he's got that many gas bottles. Well, if you scroll on down, you're going to see the picture I'm talking about. Yeah, the, there's the one where they got the two divers and uh, the they they have a rebreather on his back and he's got a couple, what, three, four tanks slung? Yeah, well, go down further and you're going to see this other guy has got four tanks on the side. Yeah. That is really interesting. Yeah. Well, hopefully somebody does a special on this so we get to see some some photos. Yeah, yeah. Oh, nice. Cool. Oh, That's yeah. A nice one. Yeah. That'll be something to follow up on. Yeah. Well, I'm sure that that's a that's type of wreck that you can uh, work for years and years and years. I mean, just all the mapping of the, uh, the bottles will take some time. Well, you figure they started doing this back in uh, 2016. Actually, 2015, 20, yeah, they've been working on this for a long time. Mm-hmm. Love the pictures, yep. though. Yep. And then uh, the video of the week we have is from National Geographic. It's uh, videographer Steve Hathaway was filming a tourism promo on October 25 on an island off the coast of New Zealand with his friend Andrew Buttle. Called him over to see something weird. You've got to be kidding me, Hathaway says as he looks upon Hearing what Buttle found, he put his scuba gear, he put on a scuba gear and dove in. It was a 26 foot long, translucent worm like creature. It looks like a giant windsock. It was yep. a pyrosome big enough for him to swim through, and he'd been looking forward to catching a glimpse of one for years. Swimming around it is pretty incredible, Buttle says. We could see hundreds of thousands of tiny creatures right up close. This is because pyrosomes isn't just one animal. It's a free-flowing colony 
of hundreds or thousands of individual organisms called zodes. Zodes themselves are small multicellular creatures that filter feed by pumping water through their bodies and catching phytoplankton, bacteria, poop particles from animals, and anything else they can clean up. The process of pumping water in one siphon out the other makes them part of a group known as trunicates or sea squirts, another nickname, cockroaches of the sea for their ability to see food out of even the least hospitable environments. The pyrosomes and its cousin, the salp, are both hugely important and superabundant in mainly tropical waters as a food source, says Andrew Jeffs, professor of marine science at the University of Auckland. Both are food for sea creatures, including turtles and Jeff's specialty spiny lobsters. Predators can cling to the tubes for the week for weeks and dine. It's like if we, it's like if humans hang off an elephant and eat it. <laughs> they can afford to take the time and munch enough to get the goodness out of them. However, animals often die from mistakenly eating plastic bags that look like them and other gelatinous organisms like jellyfish to feed. Pyrosomes swim vertically in the ocean surface at night to catch phytoplankton, then return to the depths when daylight comes, perhaps to avoid daytime feeding predators. The, these gelatinous tubular bodies glow from natural bioluminescence, which is how they got their nickname pyrosome, uh, which comes from the Greek for fire and body. They can be as small as a centimeter, or as big or bigger than the one in the video. The building process includes both sexual and asexual rep reproduction, says uh, Myro Decima, zooplankton ecologist at the National Institute of Water and Atmosphere Research in Wellington. They grow rapidly, though how quickly exactly is hard to pin down. There's more research on salps, which are made up of one zode and are more common than pyrosomes. This may change, however, Decima points out that huge pyrosome bloom in the United States West Coast in 2017 and says more efforts are being made to understand these creatures. That is interesting. Did you get a chance to see the video? Mac, did I lose you? Yes, you did for a moment. But oh. No, I did not. But I think I saw it last week. Oh, okay. And I would have loved to have seen that. But, you know, I don't see things like that. Though. That might freak me out a little. Yeah. If I found that in the river, it would, it would definitely freak me out. Well, at first you'd be going, what the heck? <laughs> what is yeah. that? What is this? Wow. Well, that does it for scuba in the news. So we had a uh, mud club meeting this week. Was there uh, with a, with a great turnout? Sounds like. Yep. Uh, was, yep. was anybody getting any diving in? Well, let me start out the other way. <laughs> uh, our uh -huh. world underwater was last week. Ah, that's right. Uh, on sixteen Saturday. and seventeen, and uh, we did have a, a number of people who went, and in fact, several people worked there. Uh, different booths. And the mm -hmm. consensus I'm getting is uh, it had less people than last year. It was condensed more. So it didn't look as – have you been for a while? You've been a couple of years ago, hadn't you? It was a couple of years ago uh, was the last time I went. Okay. And, and they, remember they, how, they... how big the space was and how um, it really wasn't jam-packed? Yeah, they've, they've got uh... – you could drive two cars down the aisles, yeah, and then and then they've they've got these short rows of about eight booths deep, and then they they just spread everything out so far that it looks like it's empty. So they consolidated it last year to the offsite place, which basically had two major rooms for displays, and then they had several rooms for 
presentations. And it was the same this year, more condensed. Uh, they said the shipwreck ones were very good. Uh, they had a separate room for shipwrecks and a separate room for miscellaneous topics. They referenced there were not the name brand speakers that you're used to seeing. Uh, Trotter was not there, for example. Uh, but most of the, if you went to a lot of the presentations, you got your money's worth participating. Excellent. Uh, it was still a lot of, it's for those who are going to be spending a couple of coin and going out where it's warm and you got good viz. Yeah. A lot of shows and a lot of, you know, the islands and travel. Well, it, it's, it's who's, who can, for the booth space, you're charging for it. It comes down to who can make enough money to justify the booth space. And Absolutely. your shops can't do it. Your clubs can't do it. So you're just left with some of your larger shops and the, the tourism and a few of the uh, equipment vendors. Uh, and then as attendance goes down, the equipment vendors are going to be less likely to go out because they have a harder time justifying it for, you know. Yeah. It was suggested. People. We write into them and suggest strongly. They do like they did 30 years ago and invite the dive clubs at a cheap, cheap rate. I mean, we can't go and spend $500 for Ain't going to happen. Right. But you said 50 bucks. come and show your club. One, you're going to have the clubs show up more. And if you have the clubs, the people who are in the club will show up then you'll be able to talk about all the different clubs, meet other people, and you'll have more people show up yeah. like we used to have. Well, you know, here's a way to do it is you uh, clubs can apply for a booth if they pre-buy 10 tickets. So you get the club members to, to each buy, you know, buy a ticket to where you got 10 tickets. And if you buy it as a uh, pre-buy it early as a group, you can apply for a free booth. That that would be the way to do it. That would be one way, yeah. Yeah, because you you figure what what was it what it cost to get in ten ten twelve dollars. Uh, no, it was more than that, as I remember, because I know I got a discount with um, Dan. He gave me another five dollars off, but I I couldn't tell you right off. Yeah, but you could do that. They would guarantee ten tickets, you know, or or pick a pick a number, and then you got the groups there, and then you give them a theme, or. Oh, it's $25 for entry and seminars. So, yeah, keep it that price. You know, you and just, this might apply also to uh, the upcoming one we're going to have. That'll be here before you know it. That's what, uh, March 2nd? Mm-hmm. The, that way we have our shipwreck festival, Great Lakes Shipwrecks. That'll be something to bring up to them since they're more local and probably talk to them better. And yeah. you do know that um, Go Ships is not going to be on. Right. Yeah, I heard um, that. That's for sure, because 2018, they were not, and they're not able to put it together for this year either. So things are coming down. Um, a lot of the shows that we used to have, the attendance is not there. Well, <coughs> and it's not just you know dive industry shows. It's all shows. I know a lot of the uh, commercial shows are just not as well attended, You know, whatever industry you're in, because... You can get a lot online, and uh, a lot of times the, the people are having a harder time justifying it. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta make it an event. It's got to be something that can that you can only do by going to the show. Mm-hmm. 
you know, the presentation, the camaraderie, the meeting other people, the, the seeing, holding, demoing something. It's, it's got to be along those avenues. And, uh, that will, that will help. I mean, there's, you may not be able to reverse the trends, but you may be able to come up with another niche that's sustainable. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it's hard to keep, um, in any club and organization, uh, on Saturday, um, we also participated in the event there at the library in Niles. Yeah, I saw about that, right? Well, yep. Right. Uh, Well, you know, the exhibit uh, out of the total items that the Smithsonian had, there was only six libraries in Michigan, and Niles was one of them that was able to have this participation in this display, which was quite a a big deal. And during the month that the display was there, they had presentations at least every week by a renowned authority on different topics of water. Mm-hmm. And we were there at the closing on Saturday, and the clientele, the people who came, were not all divers, but they were all interested in all the aspects of water reclamation, water usage. Uh, we had fernwood. We had several biological gardens out. We had the river people who were cleaning up the Pawpaw River, mm-hmm. uh, the Glean River. Uh, let's see who else you had out there. Uh, you had flower clubs, but they were looking at it from the invasive species of both land and aquatic. Yes. So everything, you know, there was a purpose for everything. And I made sure I went around and talked to everybody at every booth because it was very, very good. And a lot of people came over and wanted to know how we were doing. And most everybody knew about, oh, you're the guys who are doing the ecology dive out there. So we will have more people looking for us again this year. But uh, we had a good time and very informative, and we feel like we contributed. So that was uh, a good event. Nobody's been in the water in the last four weeks. Wow. For the club, that's got to be a record. That is. uh, Well, people are damaged, you know. Kevin's dinged up. I'm dinged up. Uh, Mm -hmm. And generally, when we get out, other people follow. We've got a couple, you know, we dove. I went out and was a uh, safety for when they drove the pier in January, mm-hmm. but uh, not too much right now. No, it's a kind of a quiet period. Yep. But I think that'll start changing if we keep having weather like we're having right now. Yeah. Yeah. If it, uh, Cause I think we're on the uh, warm up trend. Uh, I saw an article about a week ago that said they had peak ice. So there, the ice for the winter will start to be breaking up here pretty soon. Yep. Yeah, Karen in the chat room saying, uh, Saturday's looking really nice. Well, let's see. Uh, do you have any, uh, like a safety story or anything for this week? Well, I've got a, let me switch my paper for a second. There's an, I always like to go to Dan because Dan has always got something good. Um, I don't know how long this is going to be, but I'll go through it. Topic starts out as diver using full face mask runs out of air. Case report. While sailing in the Caribbean, three fellow divers and I decided to dive a wreck we had dove during a similar sailing trip several years ago. I was the most experienced diver about 25 years, had assisted with teaching scuba classes for many years while in college. The other three divers had fewer than 10 to 20 dives each. One diver had a history of ultra-sensitive gag reflex 
and was uncomfortable with a regulator mouthpiece in his mouth. Therefore, he had purchased a full face mask, tried it once before his trip. Should he encounter an out-of-air situation, he would have to completely remove his mask to buddy breathe. I recommended for him to place a regulator or regular mask around his neck when diving using the full face rig. So if he needed to remove it, the mask, full face, he would be able to put on a regular mask, something he had learned in cave diving. On the day of the particular wreck dive, the diver with the full face mask did not want to bother with carrying a spare mask. Upon entering the water, the divers were so enthralled with the wreck that they all seemed to go in all different directions. Being the gentleman in charge, I corralled them all back together, tried to get the three to follow more closely, but the excitement was getting to them and they were wandering about, getting far apart from each other. As a dive leader, I was periodically checking individual air gauges. All four of us were consuming about the same route of air. After a few times checking individuals, I began to rely on my gauge to estimate the air. As my pressure gauge reached 1,000, we were moving along the wreck, gradually ascending from a depth of 80 to around 60 feet. We began looking for a mooring line we could follow up for controlled ascent. The current on the wreck was strong enough I did not want to try a free ascent, especially with the number of other boats anchored at the wreck site. Quickly found a mooring line, noticed I was at 900 PSI, and thought we would all do a safety stop at 15 for a few minutes. I looked around, saw the diver with a full face mask, quickly swimming in towards me, signaling he was out of air. I retrieved my octopuses, removed his full face, and he met me at the mooring line. Since the diver did not have a spare mask, he had to pinch his nose, close his eyes, and concentrate only on breathing with water in his face. He was very anxious to ascend, but was breathing okay, so I controlled our ascent. We ascended quickly, but not dangerously so. On the surface, he was fine. Upon reaching the surface, we saw the other two divers on the mooring line below us, making their safety stop. In retrospect, I should have done several things differently. I should have insisted that the diver with the full face mask bring a spare mask. I should have forced the group to stay closer together. I should have been more forceful in monitoring air consumption of all divers. Turned out the diver with the full face mask was consuming quite a bit more air, especially as the tank emptied. On other dives during our trip, he was always the first one out of air, and I wonder if using the full face caused a bit of higher air consumption. No adverse effects were noticed by any of the divers. We made three more dives throughout the week. Later dives, the group followed much more closely. We monitored air consumption quite a bit. So the comments, it said, diving from a small private boat without formal organization when compared to diving in formal groups carries a greater risk of incident. Similarly, unscheduled flights on small aircraft in comparison with scheduled flights on larger craft. Friends tend to follow more leeway with friends or take more responsibility for themselves than what a dive professional would do for a customer. In the case of the more experienced diver, taking responsibility for checking the gauges instead of letting them do it for themselves. You know, in that case, he did the right thing in taking the responsibility, but it was not his. The diver with the hypersensitive gag reflex is at additional risk of drowning if the reflex occurs underwater. He knew a full face would be a solution, but he did not practice enough to use it before the dive trip. It is said that the remaining dives, he wound up taking a dive mask with. So I think he was a little bit lucky.
Yes, <laughs> certainly he was lucky. And that would have been complicated or uh, enhanced more had that been ice, cold water. Yes, yeah, that would have uh, uh, made it a little bit more challenging. Absolutely more challenging. Do you think that his assumption on the full face mask is true? Is it is it the the nature of a full face mask to go through more air? Uh, I don't know. I depend on your excitement level and everything, because I know I've used them a lot, but quite often I'm using surface air, so I never really paid a, a lot of attention. I right. know Sir Larry wears full face all the time during the winter. Uh, his breathing, we both come out with the same amount. But I, again, I think that's because it's a low volume. Because <coughs> yeah, it didn't I, say I, the type of volume it was on that mask either. Yeah, I, I think it's going to come down to the uh, to the diver more than the the full face mask. I, unless you've got a a very sensitive valve that's uh, leaking, you know, mm-hmm. like you can in a regular regulator. I can't see where you would really go through more air. I mean, your air volume is going to be the same in yeah. an open loop. So, yeah, because with my Cressy I it was basically full face, but it was just a regulator in the mouth. It was not. You know, the the mask part was not an open cavity. Mm-hmm. Like some of the divators, I think, have a more of a vibe on the inside. Yeah. And sometimes the flow rate, you want to keep it up to keep any fogging up. Yeah. But at least he learned and started carrying a spare mask. But, again, I think cold water would have been a not-so-pleasant experience. Yeah, because if, if you're having that problem with, uh, you know, the somebody without a mask, having a hard time concentrating and breathing. Uh, is, is that, is that normal for somebody? I mean, I, if I lost my mask, I, I mean, it's something I need to practice. I don't anticipate that I would have a problem breathing out of a regulator. Well, if somebody had a hypersensitivity gag reflex and I was a dive master, I would really love to know that. Yes. And if he knew it already, then he should be prepared for changing out the mask that he didn't try. It said in the in the article he'd only done it once. I would practice more than once. Yes. But I think he was lucky. But yeah. I, again, I don't know anybody who's had a hypergag reflex. No, no, I'm not familiar enough with that. Well, anybody have any dive plans that you've heard of? I mean, you talked about that the river's getting clear. Uh, now, I the- think uh, the next big thing will be the trip down to... Uh, Lansing, basically. Not Lansing. Ann Arbor. Okay. Or uh, Great Lakes Shipwreck. Actually, there was another one, too. Darn it, and I can't remember which one it was. MSRA? Uh, MSRA? They they should be coming up. uh, They have one coming up. Uh, I don't have my material handy there. Yeah. Karen usually keeps her finger on the pulse, she might know. Yeah, MSRA. Uh, And then you've got Great Lakes Wrecking Crew. That's probably April time frame for them. Mm-hmm. And don't forget, we got the mermaids coming back. To, excuse me. This oh, year. yeah. Yeah, I, I, I was bad. I, I need to set up an interview with them. So we still need to do that. And I still got, uh, gosh, I'm robotic season. I, I can't think of any. <laughs> I'm, I'm lucky I can do these. I've got like six more weeks of uh, packed craziness going on. So you're going to be doing this next year after all or not? 
I, I I'll probably do it at least one more year. I'd like to find a replacement. They're trying to talk me into teaching a class at the school, and I'm like, I don't know. So we'll see. Oh. Well, you got anything you want to plug before we end it this week? Not at this time. I'm anxiously waiting to hear what the the joke of the day is. Yeah, and I'm and I'm hoping I didn't already use this one. I'm. I swear I I'm having a hard time keeping track of things. So. Without any further ado, here we go. A scuba diver was driving into town, and he fell into a ditch in the middle of a road. A farmer came up and said, My horse Sebastian can pull you out. The man said, Okay, and the farmer got Sebastian. When Sebastian was hooked up, the farmer said, Pull, Ranger. Come on, Benny. Let's go, Delilah. Then the farmer said, Pull, Sebastian, pull. When the car was out of the ditch, the man said, I have a question. Why did you say the wrong name three times? And the farmer said, because Sebastian is blind. If he knew the other horses weren't pulling, he wouldn't even try. <laughs> That's good. There's got to be some truth in that statement, too. It probably is. <laughs> uh, I wonder if that same works on people, too. I would think it did and would. So well, I'm surprised next- that, that uh, Karen didn't mention National Archaeology Training Workshop 2019 oh. back in Toledo. Oh, really? That's in okay. April. Ah, yeah. That's April 13, I believe. And yes. uh, we know that Karen and, and uh, Barb went to that last year and got a lot of good information out of that and practical experience. Ah, very good. That's something we'll have to keep a watch out for. Yep, it's three days, April 13, 14, and then the water day is either uh, May 18th or 19th. Yes. But you got to be a scuba diver to participate. Yep. yep. Oh, so I'm sorry. Your... You don't have to be a scuba diver to take the training. Sorry about that. Okay. Well, very good. So until next time, go out there and get wet. And stay safe. Still on. Craig was, yeah, he stayed. Yep. Still there.